BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm really thrilled to have back with me today, Justin Harvey, who listeners may remember was on the show once before to discuss financial planning for physicians. And Justin is a really fantastic guy just in general, but also he has done a lot of great work with this, not just uh, with financial planning in general, but specific to anesthesiologists and pain management folks. So Justin is the founder of APM Wealth. That's a financial planning firm that's focused on anesthesia and pain management folks in terms of their financial planning. And he's also a fellow podcaster. He's the founder and host of the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast, or also known as the APM Success Podcast. So he's going to tell us a little more about that. But Justin, welcome back to the show. Dr. Wolpaw, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Justin, you've done a lot of you know fantastic stuff. We obviously had a great discussion the first time, and there's been a lot of new things that have come up in terms of student loans and financial issues related to anesthesiologists. So you know, really happy to have you back on the show. But re- tell us just a little bit, remind folks, uh, or for people who didn't hear the first episode, a little bit more about what you do and um, and all the different stuff you're involved in. Yeah, so I have a financial planning company focused on anesthesia and pain management. And you might say, your listeners might say, that sounds weirdly specific, to which I would say, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, my wife, Sarah, is an anesthesiologist. She trained at Penn. So you and I were neighbors on the 95 corridor when we first met. Uh, we have subsequently uh, relocated to the West Coast. But as I got to know my wife and many of her peers and the challenges, the career challenges and the financial challenges faced by anesthesia and pain management docs, originally it was just, in my mind, anesthesia, and then I got to know the cousin pain management a little bit and how that's its own separate thing. I realized that this is uh, a set of fields of of careers where there's a lot of specialty-specific planning opportunity. So I thought, you know what? This is where I'm going to hang my hat, and I'm going to solve these specific challenges and do these, you know, career coaching and looking at contracts and these specific things for doctors of those specialties. And it's been so much fun. I love what I do. So that is, that's so awesome. And how about the podcast? Like, you know, that came obviously from doing this and then thinking it was a way to, to further help people. Yeah. So you can only, you know, an advisor can only work with 50 or a hundred people at a time before they're busy out of their mind. And a podcast for me was a way to scalably take the things that I was learning from many people way smarter than me and share it on the internet to anybody who wanted to listen. So that's uh, also been a really important and uh, I would say, you know, fundamental part of my professional journey and the way that I've learned so much about, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm a financial guy. And so not having the exposure to medicine, this has been an incredible way for me to just 
get to know people who can solve the very specific challenges that my clients face. And then I can learn a lot from them just in the process of talking to them on the record, which has been an absolute blast. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, as, as folks probably know, I was on your show and really enjoyed it. You're both a great um, financial advisor and a great host. So you do both things really well. Um, oh, and you. I would encourage people to check out your podcast. All right. So let's, uh, again, we want to uh, kind of do an update for folks about what's going on um, with student loans and then, and then touch on some other topics too. But student loans, obviously a big deal for a lot of people who have just, you know, crushing amounts of them. And um, there's a lot going on. So What's been going on recently with student loans and some of the challenges that folks have been experiencing since we last talked? Yeah, so many of your listeners, uh, you know, this will be a, a topic that is near and dear to their hearts and their wallets. Um, it's a, a topic of significant complexity and evolving complexity, evolving in real time. And I, uh, I was really lucky to work with some of the smartest people. I think, I think some of the smartest people in America as it relates to student loans for a very, very long time and closely at Student Loan Planner. I no longer have a, an official relationship with Student Loan Planner. Uh, that's the name of this company that my friend Travis Hornsby founded. But in working with them, I got to learn an immense amount through doing many hundreds of individual analyses, helping people solve the complicated problem of how do I get out of debt, whether it's federal student loans or private student loans? How do I get out of debt for the least cost possible? In some cases, that means paying everything off. In other cases, that means uh, pursuing a forgiveness strategy. So specifically, PSLF is the one that's been in the, the headlines a lot in the last year or so. That's public service loan forgiveness. So most of what I'll discuss today relates to federal student loans. So most student loans fall into two categories, either federal or private. Private loans are totally different. They're with a bank, SoFi, Credible, Earnest, LendKey, or one of their friends. Uh, what I'm going to discuss today is anything through the Department of Ed to which uh, some of these rules of about uh, different types of forgiveness may apply. So... You know, you may remember back to, I, I remember actually talking to you, Dr. Wolpaw, at this time, corresponding with emails and COVID was obviously just coming on the scene and Johns Hopkins had that great map, you know, the heat map with all the red dots where you can see how, how paranoid you should be about what's happening in our world and how we were all like stressed out of our minds. At least I was, and I was, you know, refreshing that page every day, trying to see how bad things were getting. One of the ways that the government at that time tried to alleviate the stresses that <laughs> Americans were feeling was by putting federal student loans on hold in terms of the payments. So that means federal student loans, uh, the, the interest rate would go to zero and the required payment would also be $0 per month for a period of time. And they kept doing that and extending it and extending it and extending it. During this time, in addition, those zero payments, $0 monthly payments would also count towards PSLF. So public service loan forgiveness is obviously this, uh, it's a program where if you work for a qualifying employer, government or nonprofit, you work there for 10 years, 120 monthly payments. If you have the right types of loans, which are federal direct loans, you're on the right type of repayment plan, and you're in a full-time capacity, then you could qualify for PSLF. So this loan um, actions taken on the, by the Department of Ed by President Trump at the time was of keen interest to many borrowers. And we've continued to see, uh, as we've transitioned to the Biden administration and the way that President Biden has tried to continue to extend these benefits to borrowers, um, not only has that $0 payment been extended, and at the current time, as of the recording of this podcast uh, at the end of June, the current end date is August 31st of this year, when on September 1st, supposedly, allegedly, everyone's going to enter repayment for the first time since February of 2020. I'll believe that when I see it. Um, that may get extended again, but um, that's going to happen. But in addition 
to the extension of these $0 payments, there's been substantive structural changes to the way that student loan uh, repayment has functioned. Uh, specifically in the past, there's been a lot of landmines and there's, oh, I can't even tell you. I've been on the phone so many times, just these heartbreaking, gut-wrenching phone calls with someone who either because of an administrative mistake or because they did something they didn't realize or because someone at one of the servicers straight up lied to them and misrepresented their circumstances, causing them to take some action. They, they were on the wrong side of doing something to their loans that would... Uh, uh, you know, really specifically what I'm talking about is you'd consolidate your loans after accruing a bunch of credit. So if you have these federal direct loans, you go through residency, four years, you make payments, maybe a couple years of attending hood, you're still making payments, you're on track for PSLF, you're six years in, and then someone at Fed Loan Servicing or one of the other servicers uh, tells you something that unsettles you a little bit. By the way, nothing against Fed Loan. Uh, this could have been any of the servicers. Um, it causes you to uh, uh, consolidate your loans again, thereby hitting the reset button on your loans on that PSLF progress counter. So now you're back at month one and you have another 120 payments to go in the old guard. Uh, that was a very real and common problem challenge and frankly, tragedy that people had to endure. So the Biden administration has been trying to clean up a lot of this mess. Um, and in so doing, like just addressing some of these issues and problems. So one of the things that has changed is this Consolidation Act, uh, instead of erasing everything, now catalyzes what's called the, the PSLF waiver, uh, which means if you have, you know, it's not uncommon if you have eight semesters of med school, every time you go to med school, you take out another batch of loans. By the time you graduate, you look at your student loan statement and there's all these different line items, um, you can consult. And for whatever reason, servicers would apply credit for your payments inequitably to these loans. So you might have eight loans and you might have eight different payment counts. This one has 74 eligible PSLF payments. That one has 62. That one has 49. And borrowers are just here to think, what the heck is going on? Uh, it's, it's a mess. And so the... The one, I mean, one way to handle that is consolidate right after med school, if you had the presence of mind to do that. But later on, it was unclear how borrowers should handle this. What the Biden administration has done is to, through the PSLF waiver, they say, if you consolidate everything now, instead of deleting all of your payment history and sending you back to zero, we're now going to, in most cases, give you the, uh, the highest number. So if you have you know, all those numbers that I just listed and the highest payment count is 79 payments, your resulting consolidation loans are both going to have 79 payments. And so it's much administratively more straightforward than it has been in the past. So this is one way of trying to, it's a bit of a maya culpa, I guess you could say from the Department of Ed to say, uh, we know things have been bad. We're trying to make it better. Our efforts aren't perfect, but we're directionally progressing, hopefully. Yeah. And so, I, first of all, I, I have to, you know, take a little beta blocker here because just hearing you describe that uh, got me, you know, my stress level and cortisol level just went through the roof because it it, it was unbelievable how stressful this whole thing was. And I mean, what, what you described, not exactly, but something similar happened to me where I, I was told completely in, incorrect information by by the um, bar, by the servicer that I had and it caused me to screw things up and whatever. I ended up getting fixed eventually. But 
you know, that the amount of misinformation that was being given to people was outrageous. And then you felt totally hope, helpless. There was nothing you could do. Um, and I also had, you know, multiple different numbers on of, of payments. It made no sense, right, on different laws. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. So it sounds like this is definitely heading in a better direction. And so do people have to do – so it sounds like if people right now are in that situation where they've got, you know, seven different loans, some of them have different numbers of payments – what, they just need to take some action to now reconsolidate. Is that right? Yes. So unfortunately, the devil's in the details and it gets very complicated very quickly when you get specific. Let me make one other observation about sort of the, the circumstantial, the, the environment of the student loan landscape and, and another important point to zoom in on. As it relates to PSLF progress, one of the challenges that people have faced is they are making payments on the wrong plan, meaning not an income-driven plan. So the income-driven plans are revised pay-as-you-earn, pay-as-you-earn, income-based repayment, or income-contingent repayment. Um, many borrowers found that uh, you know they didn't realize that, oh, i got to be making payments on one of these four plans if I'm making PSLF progress. So they were on, say, the, the, the graduated payment plan. And they were doing that for six years, not realizing that the six years they were making payments, they thought they were getting closer to PSLF. They actually weren't. So in addition to addressing the, um, the challenges of consolidating and erasing your loans and all that, the, the, uh, the new program introduced by the Department of Ed and President Biden allows for the capturing of those credits as well, no matter what payment plan you're on. And there's a really great FAQ that I will send you the link for that you can post in the show notes. Uh, uh, that outlines all of the specifics about how this will function. Um, can you repeat the question that you had for me before so I can address yeah, it? Yeah, I was just wondering. So that's all. What you just said is super important, and, and we'll definitely put the FAQs in there. I was just wondering, you know, somebody may be out there thinking, yes, you're describing me. I've got all these different yeah. loans. but You know, what yeah. do I do? And is the answer they read these FAQs and it'll tell them what to do? Or, you know, what do they do? Yeah, to, so there's to, a few different act? things. First of all, I would say if you're making uh, – decisions that have six-figure impact, it's not a bad idea to get some help. Uh, I can't recommend highly enough student loan planner. I don't work with them anymore. I have no financial relationship with them. I learn a ton from them, and I think that anybody who needs this individual student loan plan should consider studentloanplanner.com, and they'll do a just a fee-for-service. You pay them a few hundred dollars, and they give you a personalized. We look at everything top to bottom, and we're giving you the playbook for what we think you should do. So I would say that first. If you're going to do something, consider getting help. Secondly, yes, the FAQs are a great option. Really what you're going to need to do is probably consolidate your loans, which you're going to do um, through your, uh, your online login, your FSA login. And then you're going to um, apply. You're going to, if you haven't done it before, you're going to submit an employer certification form, the ECF. That is where you go to your HR department and you say, hey, Sally Smith and HR, please sign this that certifies that I've done four years of residency in this program. And then they have the starting date, the ending date. Then you send that to your servicer formerly. Uh, loan servicing, now Mohila in the future. And that is how the servicer knows how many payments to credit towards your, uh, your loans. And then it's also necessary in order for the PSLF counts to be updated to apply for, the, for PSLF forgiveness. And there's a form for that also on the, uh, the FSA website. And that will, and what they'll do is they'll come back and they'll say, well, you don't qualify for PSLF yet because you've only done 40 payments or whatever. But that will then allow your payment count to be properly reflected across all of your loans. And I'll tell you, the best thing I ever did was I just filled out one of those employer certification forms every year, every year, even though, even when I was nowhere near, nowhere near the 120, I just filled it out every year. And it's a little bit of a pain, but it's not that much of a pain. 
and identify, I recommend to people, identify the person in your institution who is the person who will sign that thing for you and just save their email. And every year, just send it to them and send it in. And then it's, it is so worth it because it saves you. I can't even imagine trying to piece it all together 10 years in, you know, just doing it every year makes a big difference. Absolutely. And one other thing to be aware of, and this is a little bit of a gotcha. Uh, and this is one of the, I don't want to say the few remaining landmines, because frankly, there's still a lot of them, but it's difficult to blow up your entire PSLF effort anymore, unless you refinance, which is an irrevocable, indelible, <laughs> you burn your bridge once you do that, meaning you take your federal loans and you go to SoFi and you say, hey, SoFi, pay off Uncle Sam, and I now owe SoFi. That is a, an act that cannot be reversed. But one of the things you want to be aware of is as of the current moment, no one needs to recertify their income until at soonest March of 2023, so next year. Uh, if you consolidate your loans now, then you will have to certify your income sooner. So there's a little bit of it, and this is especially relevant for uh, freshly out of training physicians who maybe they're still certifying using that resident or that fellow salary and you kind of get that year or two where you're making the big bucks, but your payment is still $171 a month. Um, you don't want to, you want to consider not consolidating before you need to, if you're, uh, if you don't want to recertify your current income. And let me also take this opportunity to make a quick disclaimer. Please don't take any of this as personal advice because student loans are complicated. Your situation requires a professional to look at your actual numbers and prescribe a course of action appropriate for those numbers. Yeah, that's a really important point. So good things to ask someone who you're, you know, having your discussions with, or if, if you have your own expertise, but, um, you know, I, I like anything we talk about on this podcast, uh, whether it has to do with a certain medication or, or whatever, we're not telling you to go use it. We're talking about, you know, good discussions to have and, and things to think about. All right. So we talked a lot about public service loan forgiveness. Are there any other types of loan forgiveness that you think people should know about? Or is that really what, what we need to focus on? Good question. PSLF is the most common. This is a 10-year forgiveness horizon. There are others that are currently what we would call taxable forgiveness or like 20 or 25-year forgiveness. Those are the time horizons associated with those forgiveness paths. Um, at the current time, the forgiveness amount is considered to be taxable. Generally, if you're a physician or a CRNA, uh, you're going to be making enough money that it usually doesn't make sense to make income-driven payments for two decades uh, rather than just trying to bite the bullet and pay it off more quickly. In most cases, you'll actually fully repay those loans, and there won't actually be anything to forgive at the end of 20 or 25 years. So there are other forgiveness plans out there, but for the purposes of this discussion, PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness, is the one that is going to be most applicable. Right. And with public service loan forgiveness, the amount forgiven is not taxable, right? Correct. It's tax-free forgiveness. And one, you know, one question that I help people answer is, Justin, I'm thinking about private practice versus going to work at Johns Hopkins, for example, where I would qualify for PSLF. How do I know, like, what's the salary differential if I think private practice will pay me more? Because, because of the tax-free benefit, think about, you know, if I'm going to get $300,000 wiped away of PSLF uh, forgiveness, how much would you need to earn in order to have 300000 in your checking account? About half a million, probably, uh, assuming a 40% tax rate. And so one way to think about this and to look at this is to say, um, how much more would I need to make in that private practice job over the next five years after I finish residency and fellowship in order to do private practice and say no to PSLF? 
And that's one way to calculate it is, well, if I'm projecting 300K of benefit, that means I need to make 500K in order to fully pay that off. So it's an extra 100,000 a year for the next five years in order to have parity between those opportunities from an economic standpoint. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't actually think about that. You know, that's not, in my experience, uh, a lot of people don't calculate that into their, they just look at the salary. They don't necessarily yeah. think about that. So that's, that's really important. Um, all right. So is there anything else about changes uh, that we didn't cover uh, in terms of things that have changed over the past couple of years with, uh, with the loan situation? Um, the only other thing I would say is that there's a lot of great resources at studentaid.gov. And again, I'll send you some uh, links to put in the show notes. Um, the the uh, Department of Ed and the servicers have really, they realize how, what a disaster this has been. And so they've really done a, uh, made a concerted effort to provide the consumer with a lot more robust information. So if you've in the past just kind of thrown up your hands and stuck your head in the sand and said, this is too stressful, I can't even deal with it right now because I'm trying to just keep my head above water during residency or whatever, that's a very understandable reflex. But there's a lot more resources now than there have ever been. Um, studentaid.gov is a great one studentloanplanner.com they have an excellent blog an amazing YouTube channel I learned tons of things from Travis Hornsby's mailing list who's, uh, who's the founder of Student Loan Planner so there's more and more tools uh, available to, to borrowers and uh, it, this is a time of unparalleled empowerment I would say for borrowers as well as having many of the big landmines removed so hopefully you would take some encouragement dear listener that there's uh, the, the tide is turning a little bit and there's a lot more in your favor than there was the last time you were able to bring yourself to open up one of those Mohila statements. Totally. Yeah, it sounds like it. Great. So, you know, one thing you hear from people is, uh, you know, you'll hear people say, you know, no one's actually gotten this yet, right? Or they'll say, oh, yeah, they, they tell you you can get it, but, uh, but I've read that no one's gotten it yet. So is that true, or are people actually getting uh, forgiveness? Great question. Um, one of the things that has happened, one of the things I think that has been an ambition of uh, President Biden has been to sort of clear out a lot of the backlog and the problems. So you can... Imagine like this is kind of like in certain municipalities where there's a court system where it's like people are waiting, you know, two years to get a trial or whatever. And then every now and then a new DA will come in and like clean house and they'll do some sort of trying to get everything caught up to speed. That's what's happening right now in student loan land. And so what we're seeing is there's a lot of uh, forgiveness happening. I have personally had friends. I've had clients who have gotten PSLF forgiveness. There's a great Facebook group. I think it's called PSLF Eligible Physicians. You don't need to be a doctor to join it. I'm in it and I like to kind of hear people's stories and there's a lot of good real-time feedback about people's experiences and how they're, um, you know, working with servicers and things that they're hearing and how the correspondence looks and all that, that can be really helpful as far as giving additional context for borrowers. So to answer your question, no question it's happening. Uh, I know people that for whom it has happened, I have, uh, helped people to, to get there. And it's a beautiful thing when you can pop that champagne bottle at the end of a long, long road. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. All right. So let's recap what if people are, are wanting to make sure they're on track. It used to be, man, there were like you said, you had to be on one of these four plans. You had to be, you know, doing meeting kind of all these little things. And there were, felt like there were a million ways to trip you up. It's gotten a lot easier. If you were going to just recap for people, what do they need to do to make sure they are on track? So an period? important deadline to note is that October 31st is the expiration of this. They're calling it the PSLF waiver window. So up until that point, you can correct all this stuff that in the past has been wonky and wrong in the way that I described. However, you've got to do it by October 31st. Now, personally, I think that may get extended, but that's not guaranteed. Um, so if you want to take some of these actions to rectify the past, that is a hard deadline under the current rules. 
we've seen these deadlines get pushed and pushed and pushed in the past, however. But I would say if there's a lot on the line for you, don't delay. Um, understand is consolidation needed for you? Um, do you have loans that in the past have not qualified? For example, FFEL, Federal Family Education Loan. That's a what I would call like a legacy loan type preceding the current direct federal loan program. Uh, from like 2007 to 2011, FFEL loans were very common. If you have some of those, those don't qualify for PSLF. Payments made on those loans, those payments can qualify, but they require action. They require consolidation. They probably require getting a little bit of insight from somebody who can help you make sure that you're not missing anything else in your circumstance. But what you may find is that payments made on those old loans uh, may exceed the number of payments made on later direct loans. So if, for example, you did undergrad and you were a teacher for two years and then you went back to med school, uh, during those two years of teaching, you may be qualified for PSLF. Maybe you had FFEL loans. Maybe you made payments for those two years. Your PSLF horizon then actually starts at the beginning of your first year of teaching instead of at the beginning of residency. And therefore, you can capture years worth of unclaimed credit if you take these actions. So, look at consolidation. Consider the employer certification form just to make sure you're on track. That will certify your employment does qualify and you'll then be able to see the PSLF payments reflected with your servicer and you'll be able to see okay I've got you know 27 payments for my two and a half years worth of uh, history thus far and then you'll be able to track things on an ongoing basis once you're doing that once you can see the PSLF credit once your loans have a the number of payments that you expect then you're good to go for the, then you're kind of on track and then you kind of just keep on doing it. Keep on certifying your income every year. Keep on certifying your employment every year. Keep on making your payments on an income driven plan, maintain full-time employment with a qualifying employer, and then keep on going until you reach the promised land. Amazing. And now Justin, let me see if I understood this correctly. Let's say that I was a teacher first before I went to med school, like you said, let's say when I was in college, I took out, I'm just going to use easy numbers. I took out a $10,000 loan. Then I was a teacher for two years. I was making small payments on that loan. Then I go to med school and I take out $400,000 of loans. And now I make, you know, I finish med school. I'm making small amounts of payments, et cetera. Uh, my payments on all $410,000 of loans I already have, I get to count all the years of paying or just on the 10,000. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Justin's answer to that question. Hey folks, Pattern is a disability insurance company and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
All right, we're back. And Justin's going to tell us about how this works. If you had some loans out from before med school, you did some payments, then you took big ones out in med school. Do those old payments count? So here's how it would work is if you did two years of teaching and then you did med school and then you graduate med school and say it's the end of your PGY1 and you're about to, you're about to turn over to PGY2. So your PSLF eligible payments on your direct loans for med school would be 12 payments. Under the rules of this program, you would, you would actually be able to capture the payments for those, especially if it's an FFEL loan, those two years of payments while you were a teacher, 24 payments. So if you did a consolidation right now, based on these facts, at the end of PGY1, you would actually, instead of having 12 payments, have 36 qualifying payments. Wow. That is, that's huge. Yes, that is it is huge. huge. And this is one of the really positive byproducts and frankly surprises that people are finding in some cases that, wow, I never realized the time when I was paying on my rinky-dink undergrad loans between undergrad and grad school, that if, if the employment qualifies, uh, meaning a nonprofit or government uh, employer, and if you're making those payments, that, uh, that credit can be captured. So that's a big plus. Wow. That is a huge plus. Okay. Important for people to know. All right. So, um, you mentioned there's still one big potential mistake people could make, which is to do a private consolidation. Um, yeah. A refinance would... specifically a consolidation yeah, and right. a refinance are two different things. Consolidation right. is keeping everything in the federal system or refinance is when you leave the federal system, you go to a bank and you say, and, and there's great reasons to do this, especially if you think you're going to be in private practice. You know, we've talked a lot about PSLF, but if you're going to be in private practice or you're going to start a practice or something like that for our listeners who are going to be anesthesia, if you're practicing clinical anesthesia, uh, it's, it would be unusual for you to, I guess, start your own practice. You could do locums for a while. Locums would not qualify for PSLF. Uh, and any of the big private groups would also not qualify. So if you're going that route and you feel a high degree of confidence that PSLF is not in your best interest, then you probably want to take those, you know, 7.2% federal loans once they enter repayment, that's what they'll be or whatever the number is and go to, you know, SoFi, for example, and pay three and a half or four. And rates have been coming up a lot because of, you know, that's the way interest rates have been going last year. Uh, so there's a lot of benefit to refinancing in that circumstance. But whenever you do that, it's important to know that you're permanently saying no to PSLF. So if you move across the, comp the country to take a job with USAP and it falls through for whatever reason and you want to go back to, and I have clients like this. I actually had a client uh, last year who did nine months in a, a private practice and they promised her the world and she came in and she was doing like 10 call shifts a month and it was terrible and she hated it and she was underpaid. She was on salary. She didn't have any production pay. Um, she's like, screw this. I'm going back to the academic world where uh, she's now much happier. She, that nine months doesn't count for PSLF, but the preceding four years of residency still does. So she takes those 48 payments with her and now just restarts the clock. So even though there's been a break, you can still restart it. Now, if she had said, I'm taking the job of my dreams with this private group, I'm going to refinance my loans because I know I'm going to be in private practice. And then she moves there and then it's terrible. And then she wants to go back to academic center XYZ. Then it's too late and she's burned her bridge, unfortunately. So don't refinance until you're really, 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 really sure that PSLF is not going to be in the cards. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so are there any other mistakes? So that would be a mistake, right? If you were going to qualify for PSLF, uh, re refinancing would be a mistake. Other things you think people should watch out for that would be a, a, a not a something not to do? Um, there's a lot of like little mistakes. Like I said, it's difficult to totally destroy your PSLF uh, chances in the way that it was easier to in the past. As far as finding the optimal path, um, 
finding the optimal path can be challenging, meaning the path of least cost. One thing to look out for is if you have a bunch of loans and some of them say like 48 payments and some say 47 payments, uh, and you, because you're an OCD person, you want to like have them all say the same thing, which is an understandable reflex. And I would want to say, why would I want to pay an extra payment on that? It actually doesn't always make sense to consolidate just for, uh, a reconciliation of that margin because it's going to cause you to have to recertify your income sooner. And if you're the, you know, resident or fellow a year or two ago that was pay, it's still paying that $171 a month. That's been an attending for a couple of years, but still has that. If you uh, consolidate your loans just to sync up that one or two missing payments, all of a sudden you're resetting to 2,900 or $3,200 a month. And all you've gained is that one payment and you've got to make these much higher payments between, you know, whenever we enter repayment in September and all the way until the middle of next year. So that can be a, actually a tens of thousands of dollars mistake if you uh, do it for that reason. So generally it's best practice to have a, it only makes sense to consolidate in this circumstance for the reason that I'm describing. Uh, if you have a wider gap between the, the least and the most payments captured, uh, because of uh, that effect of having to certify again. And again, this is where having some professional help can be useful to help you do that calculation. Yeah, great. All right. So super important to know. Now, you mentioned before that in theory, September 1st, repayment is going to start. How likely do you think that is? You sounded skeptical before. And let's just say that it might happen. What would you recommend that people do to start getting ready for that event? Great question. Um, I don't, I, I categorically don't really like to prognosticate because you're just always wrong if you keep on guessing enough. So I like to be wrong as little as possible. So I like to say, eh, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, I would say that if I were a betting man, um, you know, there's elections coming up. There's a lot of people that have student loans. And if I can punt starting student loans until after the election, and there's a lot of people that are going to benefit from that, and it doesn't cost me anything, uh, you know, maybe that is something that, uh, might make sense for the, the people that can, that are in the power to make those decisions. Um, it's important to note that, you know, if you have a couple thousand dollar a month, in some cases payment coming back online, that you need space in your budget for that. And we've been, we've had the benefit of not having to, you know, make these payments for a couple of years now. And unfortunately what happens with people, this is just uh, human nature, what's called the hedonic treadmill, <laughs> you get used to your life. And in order to continue experience nice things, you need to spend a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to feel like your life is nice. If you do that for two years and you eat up that margin of 2,500 bucks a month that you had in the past that used to be earmarked for student loans and now you don't have any extra each month, well, guess what? You're gonna have to start making payments again. So getting ahead of it a little bit and trying to um, you know, recapture some free cash flow to be able to make those payments is gonna be well advised. Yeah. Also, this is an opportunity to make sure that the payment plan that you're on, uh, if, especially if you've, you know, in residency, often revised pay as you earn. Repay makes sense for a lot of people. Repay is an uncapped payment plan, meaning if you make a million dollars a year, you might be paying, I don't know, seven or $8,000 a month. There's no cap. The more you make, the more you're going to pay. Um, for pay as you earn and for IBR, these are capped plans. You're never going to pay more than the 10-year standard amount. So for people who transition from residency or fellowship to attending hood, often that is a time where you want to reevaluate the payment plan that you're on. And if you've been on revised pay as you earn, you may want to consider switching to a capped plan based on 
the numbers and how much your repay payment would be in order to keep your payments as low as possible, especially if you're going for PSLF. Because if you're going for PSLF, the name of the game is I want to pay as little as possible for as long as is required until forgiveness is achieved. And if I'm on revised pay as you earn and I'm paying more than I need to, then I'm just flushing money down the toilet. Yep. Okay, great. Now, you've talked about some resources, some frequent last questions, things like that, uh, that we'll post uh, on the show notes. Anything else you would recommend folks check out if they want to get more information? Um, I mean, I would say... No, not, not aside from what I've already mentioned. I think Student Loan Planner, I just can't commend them highly enough. They're uh, thought leaders, and always, they have a team of experts who are always looking at every possible permutation, and they've got a great YouTube channel that walks you through even the, the PSLF help tool, which I didn't mention before. That's something also newly available on the um, studentaid.gov website that allows people to understand the consolidation process and what it's going to mean for the loans going forward. They have a great tutorial to kind of walk you through that, and I'll, I'll send you that link in the show notes to, so that listeners can check it out. Great. All right. I want to change gears uh, completely from loans and ask you about something I know people have heard a lot about, which is the No Surprises Act. This is, I mean, clearly this impacts anesthesiology. And if you didn't know it for any other reason, you you probably are getting lots of emails from the ASA about this, right? So people are paying attention, but I think a lot of people out there probably don't know what it is or how it impacts anesthesiology. So tell us a little bit about it, Justin. Yeah. So this is broad and deep and complicated, but anesthesia... Emergency med, radiology, and pathology are the four biggest specialties that this is impacting. And really, it's the specialties where the patient has the least awareness of what's going on and the least say in advance of any services received. You know, if you get a scan, an MRI, or you come into the ER and a physician takes care of you, you're not, you don't have anything to do with the radiologist in the basement who's reading your scan, or you're not there to like negotiate with the emergency doc as you're bleeding out on the floor. So these are specialties where there have been some, again, it's complicated, but there's been unscrupulous billing practices by some physician groups. There's also a lot of private equity backed uh, groups in these specialties and their business people arguably have really taken wild, egregious advantage of the ability to balance bill patients. Um, Meaning, uh, you know, your insurance is only going to cover $100 of your ER visit because it's an out-of-network hospital while you're bleeding out. You weren't trying to figure out, am I in-network or out-of-network at this hospital? You're like, I just need to stop bleeding. So if your insurance company is only going to pay $100, then the $37,000 emergency room bill, to take sort of an extreme example, $36,900 is now your responsibility. So the No Surprises Act has sought to eliminate that uh, unethical billing practice. But in the process, it's created a lot of challenges for some of these physician groups and anesthesia is a big, uh, a, a big player in this. And so one of the things to be aware of as it relates to the no surprises act is there is a seismic shift happening right now for the way that anesthesia groups can bill, uh, for out of network patients. And so as you're looking at the, the most, I think ready application for your listeners, Dr. Wolpaw is if you're looking at jobs, especially if you're looking at private groups, because you know, the bigger institutions, especially academics, they're going to, they have a lot of resources to be able to handle whatever legal, they've got a legal department, like kick it over to the lawyers and have them deal with it. And I'm just here to do medicine. But if you're looking at private groups, uh, private anesthesia groups, especially if they're smaller groups, they often don't have, I mean, they don't have a legal department. There are small business owners who often have a contract with one or two or a handful of sites of service. And so the No Surprises Act is going to, may 
significantly impact their ability to get paid for the services rendered for uh, out-of-network patients. And it's, it's cre- as part of the No Surprises Act, it's creating what's called a, um, an arbitration process that has all these steps and factors. And you have to go before an independent panel and argue in front of a, you know, a third party why you should have gotten paid you know, $70 per unit for this patient. And the insurance company is also going to be there, and they're going to argue why you should only get paid $32 a patient. And regardless of who wins that argument, you're already losing because you're arguing in front of an arbitrator. You're not doing anesthesia. So if groups don't have a plan and they're not aware of – I mean, if, you go, <laughs> if you're doing job interviews, if you're a CA2, going to be a CA3, or you're just starting your fellow year, and you're looking at jobs and you're talking to groups about the No Surprises Act, and they look at you and they say, what's the No Surprises Act? If you want to know how they're preparing and what infrastructure they have and what connections they're making to be able to go through this arbitration process with uh, full preparedness, and they are not paying attention and they're not going to the ASA practice management meetings to be able to be really leaning into this as much as possible, uh, there's going to be a significant rude awakening. Um, This law went live in January of this year. So only right now we're starting to see, you know, the, the revenue cycle, 60, 90, 120 days uh, that's about how long it takes to get paid for what you do. And we're right in sort of that space where groups are starting to see the financial impact of this. And so you don't want to work for, I mean, again, this is just my two cents. You don't want to work for a group that has no idea what's going on in this area because it's, it may present an existential threat. And if you're, especially if you're moving across the country to take a job or something like that, you want to make sure that you are, uh, that your employer is prepared and has the infrastructure required to be able to address some of these challenges. Yeah. And one other thing I'll note is that it's unfolding in real time. There's lawsuits in a bunch of different States. There was a ruling in Texas that seemed to favor physicians a little bit, but there's, it's still, there's a lot that we need to learn. And it may be that this thing totally gets diffused and that it's a, it's a big, uh, you know, much ado about nothing. Uh, I think that's possible, but I also think that the inverse is also possible, and it reflects this ongoing trend of pushing physicians more and more, just dr- driving out, making it very difficult to be uh, a small private practitioner. So. Yeah. So that's, a, first of all, great. Thank you for summarizing the, the No Surprises Act, and I think the, the takeaway from that is make sure if you're you know going into practice that your practice knows about this and is preparing for it. Now, Interestingly, you mentioned, you know, uh, it can be harder and harder to be in a small private practice. Are those uh, you, you hear a lot that, um, you know, small private practices are are going away. Uh, certainly there are huge kind of conglomerate uh, private equity backed practices that are growing. Um, is that the trend you, you see? Do you think we're, we're losing uh, the small groups and going to end up just with these giant ones? Great question. I ask many guests on my podcast the same question because I'm keenly interested in it, and it does impact many of my clients and friends and spouse. Um, the, what does what the future of the vocation of anesthesia look like? And uh, I mean, there's no denying that the current swing of the pendulum is towards larger and larger groups. Frankly, because the administrative and compliance burden is getting higher and higher and higher because you can't just do anesthesia anymore. You also have to have lawyers to do the arbitration process that I just described. So... There's no question that that's a, a challenge. Now, having said that, I know of a number of smaller groups that seem to have a symbiotic relationship with the site of service that they serve, and they've got a good thing going, and they're going to just keep on doing it. So there's definitely pressures. There's reimbursement pressures. You know, there's compliance pressures. There's uh, even just like billing and fighting with insurance companies, uh, being able to bring in enough revenue to keep your lights on. That's getting more and more difficult. There's no question. Um, having said that, I, I think that having 
I, I have a soft spot in my heart for the, the business owning position. And I really, really want to see them succeed because I think that when they're a stakeholder in their own enterprise, it just creates a totally different, very positive experience for all of the players in the healthcare ecosystem. And it's obviously a two-edged sword, but I'm a big believer in wanting to try to equip those physicians as much as possible. So yeah, I mean, it's getting tougher and tougher out there, but I hope that, uh, I hope that the pendulum will swing back. All right. Well, we'll keep our eye on it for sure. Now there are a ton. Uh, we've, I've really seen this swing as a, as a program director of a few years ago, almost everybody was going into fellowship. And now there's such a, I think an anesthesiologist shortage that, uh, and the job market is so hot that the offers people are getting to join practice are through the roof. And so we're seeing a lot fewer people going to fellowship. I'm curious, do you have a take on this? Do you think that in the long run, uh, are fellowship trained physicians going to be more in demand? Uh, is it a good move to take a really lucrative offer and go straight into practice and skip fellowship, even if you were interested in a fellowship? What do you think? What do you advise people? Yeah, uh, this is a multifactorial question. Obviously, the first sort of filter you got to use is what kind of anesthesia do I want to be doing? And if I want to do all cardiac or all neuro or all, you know, whatever, then yeah, do that fellowship because that's what you want to do clinically. So if you totally separate it from the economic question, then do what you want to do, do what's going to make you happy. And if money is no object, then go for it and have no regrets. If it's an economic question, like, is it worth it to make $72,000 instead of an attending anesthesiologist salary for that one year? What's the opportunity cost? Um, is the increased marketability that I have as the fellowship trained anesthesiologist worth it? Ooh, man, I don't know. Um, it depends. In many cases, no, I think. Um, in certain cases, especially depending on the subspecialty, you, you could argue that it does. And if you're going to do pain, that's a totally different animal. And especially if you want to do like all pain management, then you, you need the fellowship and then you're not really doing anesthesia after that. So that's kind of its own thing. But for any of the, I'll call them the, the anesthesia more classic anesthesia um, fellowships. I, I think that with the way the anesthesia market is right now, how in demand specialists are, or how in demand anesthesiologists are, how many more sites of service we're seeing as more surgery centers open up, how many more just demographically potential patients we're seeing as that the you know the baby boomer bulge demographically gets more and more into the we need medical care all the time uh, part of their lives. There's just uh, an insane. Everyone that I know uh, in the either the locums world or the staffing world or even administrators, they just can't hire anesthesia people fast enough. So you can get signing bonuses we've never seen before. Even in academic centers, they're get, I'm seeing big pay raises. I'm seeing stuff that um, has been, at least in my, you know, I'm 30, I'll be 35 here in a couple of weeks. In the time that I've been paying attention, uh, there, there hasn't been anything like this. And, and there's no signs of it slowing down. So another question that I hear is like, do I need this to make sure that uh, – I have job security, you know, especially sometimes anesthesiologists are worried that they're going to lose their job to a CRNA or something. I just think in the real world, uh, you're so darn employable right now. You're never going to be unemployed and wanting a job and not be able to find one. That's my uh, shoot from the hip opinion. All right. Fair enough. My last question for you is this. Uh, you see, you work with a lot of docs, uh, anesthesiologists, pain management folks who, who are coming out of practice looking for jobs. Are there mistakes you see that you think people make and you have to help them correct or, or things that you can help avert? I mean, if you were just giving advice, what mistakes should people, you know, maybe common mistakes, maybe things that you've seen people make, would you say, hey, be careful, don't do this when you're first coming out into practice? 
great question. As it relates to sort of the prior topic, I think understanding your value, understanding that uh, demand for your services is really, really high and don't sell yourself short. I love looking at physician contracts because there's so much opportunity to add immense value in the snap of a finger. Um, so negotiate a signing bonus, uh, negotiate, you know, all of the soft, like non-monetary benefits. Those are often, even with the big academic centers, even with the big private practices, I've seen groups that swore they never would offer XYZ bonus. They're, they're doing it. Um, and even like back and forths where somebody said, no, 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 I'm holding out for a signing bonus. And then a bigger group would acquiesce and give one that's happening right now. So the first thing I would say is understand your valuable Understand whenever you sign on the dotted line, they've got you. <laughs> you're going to work for them for the terms that you've agreed upon. So now is the time. If you want to get a deal where you're going to earn what you're worth and you're going to optimize for the value of your efforts, you need to negotiate. You need to do it up front. Um, also, I mean, there's a lot I could say about contracts. I won't get down into the weeds, but I would also just say work with a, an expert in terms of a, a contract review service. And I can send you another. There's a, a really good one I like called uh, Resolve, resolve.com. Uh, it's a physician specific contract review service. They'll also negotiate for you. They'll provide income benchmarking based on levels of productivity, give you lots of great feedback for is a contract fair or not. And where are the gotchas? So working with an expert like that, it'll cost you a 500 or a thousand bucks money. Well spent. You're making probably up to this point in your life, the biggest financial decision you ever have. And it's worth paying somebody a couple of bucks to make sure that you make it in a fully informed manner. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds great. You know, I've done a few shows over the years on contract negotiation. And the one thing that lawyers and others have always echoed is if you're especially in private practice and, and it may be true in academics too, but certainly in private practice, it is worth having somebody, whether that's a lawyer or another kind of contract expert, look over your contract with you. Because like you said, there's just so much room for negotiation, especially now that, you know, if you paid someone a thousand dollars, but you got 10,000 more you know, on your signing bonus while well, you just made $9,000, right? So, I mean, it's, it's clearly a, 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 an advantage. Yeah, no question. Awesome. All right, Justin, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd recommend to the audience to check out? Um, hmm. I, I like to read. Um, I've got a couple books here on my desk, and I'm just going to grab and I'll hold up for you. This one I give to all my clients. It's called The Psychology of Money. This is a really right. great, accessible, um, lay, layperson discussion of the way that humans, while we seem like cold, calculating, irrational engines, <laughs> we're actually like a mess when it comes to even doing things in our own best interest. And nowhere like looking at money is that more obvious. So great book by Morgan Housel. Um, I also am reading this one. For anybody who's in a leadership position or in an organization where interacting with peers, giving constructive feedback, and trying to improve yourself and the organization with whom you work, uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott is really helpful, like boots on the ground, leading with relationship and empathy and understanding with your peers, and gives people lots of good questions and tools to ask as they're trying to um, be the best coworker, the best boss that they can possibly be. One last one. Um, I just got this one and I've been uh, working through it. And it's a really helpful guide for physicians in particular. White Coat Investor's Guide to Asset Protection. This is a new book by Dr. Jim Dolly. Anybody who doesn't know White Coat Investor, obviously he's the 800-pound gorilla of the physician personal finance world, whitecoatinvestor.com. He puts out these books periodically. He also has one just generally about 
physician personal finances. But this one is really, really good to look at sort of the next level of protecting what you have worked so hard to build. And especially you get into those, you know, doctors are sort of notoriously bad consumers and they get sold a lot of things that they don't need. And when it comes to asset protection and like there can be a lot of fear mongering, a lot of like, oh my gosh, you need this thing that you can't understand to protect you in ways that you, uh, you know, couldn't conceive. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. And this book kind of cuts through a lot of the crap and helps you understand what is really necessary in order to protect my nest egg and my, uh, you know, the, my house and my retirement assets, et cetera. So those are three great resources that I've really benefited from recently. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. So I um, will recommend, you know, I'm always, we have three kids and we're always looking for movies we can watch as a family, right? And when, when the kids are really little, it's going to be, you know, whatever cartoon movie, um, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, and some of them are very good. Encanto, for example, if you haven't seen it, is a, is a really enjoyable movie, even for adults. <laughs> Um, but, uh, we just recently got a great recommendation from some friends and we took them up on it and we watched with our older two who are 11 and nine, we watched, um, Ferris Bueller's day off. And I will tell you, I had never, I just hadn't thought about it. I haven't seen it for those who, if you haven't seen it, it's from 1986, it's an amazing fun movie. It's very much a part of my childhood. I remember watching, but, um, I will say that, uh, it is a great movie to watch with kids about that age. Now, there is a lot of swearing, so you have to be okay with your kids hearing swear words. But other than that, there's really not a lot of content that is you know, problematic for kids that age. And it's fun. And, and even though it's an old movie, they I mean, it's funny to think of it as old, but it is relatively old. Um, my, you know, my kids thought it was really fun. So I would highly recommend if you're looking for something and you're comfortable with the foul language, uh, checking it out. It's fun for you and, and they'll enjoy it, too. I will say as a dad of a two and a half year old, I have really enjoyed vicariously experiencing the joys of sidewalk chalk, sprinkler in the front yard, Encanto, Frozen, you know, cars, all oh. of those uh, Pixar classics. So it's been, Absolutely. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I agree. Well, Justin, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, we'll have you back another time. And uh, every time you're on, I learn a lot. And I know our listeners do too. So thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Dr. Wolpaw. Always a pleasure. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 